This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. So the name of this is The Sacrificial Generation, but I almost changed the name. I mean, I, I spent a good deal of my morning just discussing name with myself. And you guys know, I, for some reason, I spend more time, thought on names than maybe I should. But for me, they're placeholders. They, they say something. And years from now, I reference back to a name. And so I want it to match what is going on. And so I almost change it to the first sufferers because that's, that's why I'm slipping it at the beginning. So it's sort of like we get credit for two different names on this one. This is officially, I decided officially it's going to be the sacrificial generation and mainly because I feel like that says it more clearly what I'm trying to get across. Whereas if I just say first sufferers, some of you are like, oh, I know where he's going with this. You follow me? And so since that's a term we've used quite often, in, in, in the Ellerslie world, I want to sort of bring up an idea and sort of expand it a little. <sighs> to give you context for this, I, this is a continuation of the series that I'm going through in the spiritual biography of a nation as I'm going through the formation of what we know as the United States of America, but not so that I can teach history, but so that I can teach how God works in, a, in the construction of strength. And there's so many lessons that we've gone through so far in the first 13 uh, that have been transformative. I mean, extremely powerful. And this is equally so. There's, I'm right at the time of 1620, heading in, crescendoing uh, into the darkest hour, if you want to say it. If, you know, the darkest hour in World War II uh, is is May of 1940. This is like the darkest hour of American history, if you want to say it that way, that most of us know about. And that's uh, December of, 19, of <laughs> 1940. December of 1620, January of 1621, February of 1621, and March of 1621. And you'll understand why. And it'll, it'll all rekindle as, as I go through. It's like, oh, wow, that, that is a really intense stretch. Out of it is going to come what we know as the strength of our country, out of this little pocket of time. And it is a proving, it is a crucible. And it's a crucible that I almost feel like is setting in front of us right now. And we could stare at it through plate glass window and go, yeah, boy, I'm glad that's someone else that's walked through that. And I almost feel like there's a door to this crucible, guys, that is open to us to say, I am looking for a few men and women from this generation that would be willing to do the same, to set a pattern in place to shift the course of history. So technically this isn't a Ronald Reagan quote, but Ronald Reagan said it, and he's one of the guys that many people think said it, Barack Obama also said it. So I'm giving credit to Ronald Reagan. Uh, technically, I think it goes back to a Jewish rabbi from way, 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 way back. It's, it's a sketchy history. No, no, I don't think anyone knows. It's a great quote. And 
everyone could say it, no matter, no matter what their creed is. That's why I'm sort of trying to grab it for a very certain purpose. But if not us, who? If not now, when? There is a, a pressing that I think many of us feel today, and I'm not sure because I've only lived inside of my body. I've said that many times as a leader. It's like I'm not exactly sure what other people are feeling. I just have hunches. But that there is a need to do something at a greater, more heightened level to respond to the encroaching darkness. That darkness is going to have its way and it's going to continue to increase unless something happens. And if you were to say, Eric, what do you mean by something happens? I don't know what I mean by something happens. I just know something needs to happen. And I also know that throughout history, when the enemy comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard against it, or something happens. And that's what I want to make sure we don't miss. I don't want us to miss it because we are so self-focused, that we are so comfortable in our American traditions. I don't want to miss God doing something. I want to jump aboard whatever train that is and say, God, I, I want a ticket on that. And yet, when we are having that discussion with God, we need to recognize that what we are asking to get a ticket on will likely lead to our death. When God is doing something in response to the powers of darkness, it looks sort of like AD 33, to use a generalized uh, date, the cross. That's what it looks like. It looks like something being raised up to literally absorb something, to stand in a gap. And it usually doesn't lead to the continued life of the gap filler. So it is a decision to lay down your life. And I mean this. I'm not just talking grand and epic and romantic uh, concepts, even though I do like those. I'm actually talking about a very, very real decision-making process that I'm in, engaged in right now trying to decide. We've had many moments in Ellerslie over the past, uh, whatever it's been, five, six months. I don't know how long COVID's been lingering. And the effects of it have been stirring us as a body. But at what point do I take a step beyond what would be, uh, you know, you can hide under radar uh, with what you do, or you could step up and stick your head out of a foxhole. And who in their right mind would ever do that? And so that's part of the decision-making process for me. There's many moments where Leslie and I will say, are we supposed to do something right now? And our human response is no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't need any more drama in our life because we do have plenty of it and we don't need more. And I agree with that. On paper, that's a, it, it's a truthful statement. But sometimes God positions you as an Esther to actually stand up and to fill the gap. And Esther is knowing when she is being asked by Mordecai to do that, she recognizes that it will likely lead to her death. She doesn't know the end of the book of Esther. She doesn't see the outcome. She knows the need. And she recognizes that she was placed in that position for such a time as this. So how do I not know that I have been positioned for such a time as this? Well, but God, I want to live a long life. I have dreams. I have desires, as everyone does. But when you start catching God's dreams and desires, it could be that, Eric, I want you here right now, and I've positioned you right here to say this at this exact hour. And this will create a domino effect, which will change the direction of history. 
Esther is going to be used to rise up and change the direction of history. David, the shepherd boy, is going to rise up and make a decision that will change the course of history. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden, and we see, uh, and many of you have heard me reference this before, but you have Eve, who is going to eat of the fruit, and she is going to disobey God, and then all we know, I mean, Adam is just suddenly just going to eat the fruit too, and she gave it to her husband, and he did eat. It's like, what? Come on, buddy, at least show some backbone. You see, Adam was supposed to respond differently. And this is where the term the sacrificial generation comes from, is there is meant to be something that stops the flow of evil. And in this situation, the priest of Eden, Adam, was the one that was supposed to rise up and say, Eve, Eve, we cannot eat of that fruit. The day in which we eat of that fruit, we will surely die. She's like, I don't feel dead. As her eyes, I always say, one eye's going this way, one eye's going this way. I don't feel dead. In other words, she is lost. She's lost the very presence of God. She has exited life. Even though she has mortal life, she has lost spiritual life. And so Adam eats. I mean, come on, Adam. This is the very moment that we need Adam. And so imagine if Adam's like, Eve, Eve. And, and Eve is like, Adam, Adam. And they're separating apart. And Adam's like, I, 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 what, what do I do? And he runs into God. And God says, Adam, uh, what's going on? God, Eve, she ate of the fruit. I know, she must die. But God, is there any other way? You can die for her. See, death is required, and in this situation, it's pretty obvious who should lay down the life. You see, Adam, if he had risen up and proved the man, the priest, would have said, take me instead. Instead, he got swallowed up in the darkness along with Eve. We lost our advocate. We lost our man. We lost our priest in the situation. So God's like, whoa, we need, we need a priest who can stand on behalf of the bride. And so he himself is going to become that. He is going to don human skin. He is going to come to this earth and be groomed as the priest who can actually stand in the place, who can rise up and be the sacrificial generation so that others can live. If not us, who? If not now, when? So you guys know I've been studying a lot of World War II right now, and that's what our, the Daily Thunders are always dealing with. Now, there's an idea in, in World War II that I, I tried to find the quote that I, I came across. It was like this last week. You ever had that? Where, but I read too many things. And so I could not land it. Uh, and so I created my own quote. Okay, it's a good quote. Okay, guys, it's not as good as taking a quote from someone who actually, you know, was making the decisions in 1939 of how to respond. But this is the logic. The logic of what many are going to consider the greatest generation ever. And what could we call this generation? A sacrificial generation. Listen to this logic. If a generation must sacrifice to gain liberty and to put down evil, if it's necessary that a generation sacrifice in order to gain liberty and put down evil, why should we set that upon our children's shoulders? Why shouldn't we carry that burden upon our own shoulders and happily give up our lives that our children might have a God-fearing world 
to live in. That's a very interesting flow of logic. You see, if we knew that there was a requirement that someone was going to have to lay down their life, it's very easy for us to pass that on to our generation, the next generation, unless you're a good parent. And if you're a good parent and you realize that's my own kids that I'm passing that on to, that, be, that, be, that creates an inner struggle of what you do. And you're going to see a whole generation of men, the reason they are going to so aggressively go after Hitler is, and be willing to die, and I'm not saying it was easy for all of them, but the reason they're willing to do this is they recognize that if they don't stop this now, their children are going to be under it. And so they are willing to lay down their lives. It's a sacrificial generation, okay? It's the very concept that I'm trying to bring up today. So the pattern of the first sufferer. If someone must suffer, choose me. Now, everything about this is very noble-sounding. Okay, there is, there is something right about it, that if someone came into this room and said, hey, you know, I'm going to hurt someone, well, then it's sort of like, who's he going to hurt? Technically, as the leader, I should be ready to say, take me. And we all know that, that there's something noble about that. However, I, I, I don't want to mess with the fact that I may paralyze in that moment and Steve Rosen rises up and says, take me. It's like, I don't want Steve to be able to do that. I want to be quick in being ready to suffer. Now, there's nothing in us in this culture. I, I was uh, talking with a man yesterday, and one of the statements he made was, if you don't teach work ethic young, it's very difficult to teach it in the teens. And, well, how about this? If you don't teach how to suffer well when you're young, it becomes increasingly more and more difficult for the old dog to teach him new tricks. We are in many ways that old dog. I don't know if you guys could acknowledge that, but we haven't grown up suffering. We haven't grown up accepting difficulty and embracing it with a smile. And as a result, we become vulnerable to entering into this season where God wants to raise up a standard against something, and yet we may shrink back instead of go forward. This is the arena that I want God to touch us in and to prepare us in. I don't mind being a supernatural generation, a generation that supernaturally overcomes what we would consider the obstacle of non-practice. This is why during World War II, when I was naming my World War II series, I named it 1940. And the reason I named it 1940 is because it so startled me to see what happened from 1939 to 1940 in Great Britain. These guys were more pathetic than we are now in 1939. Okay, that's saying a lot. And in 1940, they're going to be considered the greatest generation ever. They're going to awaken from their stupor, and then they're going to go and lay down their lives. And, I mean, you should I mean, when you study Great Britain in 1940, it is so inspiring because you have families that are gathering together basically saying, it's very likely that Hitler is going to invade. Here's how we're going to respond. Here, we are going to give up our life because if we don't lay down our life, then this island will always be ruled by an evil. And so even if we have to die, I mean, this is the way they're, they're talking. This is the self-centered, I mean, this is the exact opposite in 1939, and something is gonna shift, which inspires me. It gives me that sense of hope to say, you know what? Even though I'm looking around at the church right now, which is 
creating every excuse that it can come up with of why we should just be, uh, you know, passively allowing the, the government to tell us what to do and how we are to function and that we are no longer allowed to do this or this or this. It's like Christianity has never taken its cues from the world. We have always been against the grain. The fact that we have had rights in this country is a rare thing in Christian history. Most Christians throughout history have never had one right to go out and share the gospel with someone. We do not do what we do because we have governmental rights. We do what we do because we have a commission from the Most High God, knowing full well that it will cost us our life if we're really going to follow through and be obedient to that. We need to wake up from our stupor and recognize that we are in the midst of a battle and that Hitler regime is going to rule our world unless a generation rises up and says, take us. So this is the stirring that's in me. This is what you're going to see I'm going to bring up in American history today. In 1620, in December of 1620, you're gonna see the generation that says, take me. And they're literally going to be the foundation of the government that we understand, the history of America that we cherish, even though right now if I were to take a snapshot of America, many of us would have a tough time cherishing it as a wonderful country. We have wonderful roots, we have a wonderful framework, and it has so much potential as long as godliness is maintained, a fear of God is kept. If you lose the fear of God in the midst of this governmental system, it's lost. It's no different than any nation previous that is ruled by the flesh and self-seeking individuals. We've had something very, very precious in this country. I do believe it is worth standing up for. And so as a result, we're gonna feel that tension as we go through this, but my desire isn't to save America. My desire is to see the church rise up and stand on behalf of the truth of Jesus Christ. I want to see a revival of the nations. I want to see an awakening that stirs. I want to shove this back in the enemy's face and let him rue the day he ever disturbed the church of Jesus Christ from its slumber. Because right now, there's a stirring, and many of you have felt it. It's sort of like, God, are you asking more of me? And I've talked with many, many men around, this, around the country, around the world, God, are you asking more of me? Of course, we know the answer to that question. God, are you asking more of me? Is that actually a, is that a rhetorical question? Of course he is. God desires more, but we have justified serving him up to this point because it's so radical next to the rest of the world around us. But God wants to take us into the real thing. The sort of thing that when it's fed to lions, sings a song, shouts for victory. Okay, whatever that is, that's what we're after. So the first sufferer, this is a concept that I've used as far as in my own mind, my own understanding for quite a long time to describe manhood. Because Jesus is going to be the one that says, take me. He's gonna come to this earth and it's like, okay, there's rightful judgment on the head of this bride and Jesus is gonna say, take me instead. I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell. He suffered for us. And so we become these miniatures, this miniature representation of this same love, this same willingness to lay down our life that others may find life. We are not life givers the way that Jesus is. He's a capital L life giver. 
but we are lowercase l life givers. That there's a, a real movement of grace when we step into that same role and allow the Spirit of God to work in us to say, take me instead. So the inner wrestlings of Eric Ludi, ha- that's on the screen right now, it says the test at Jason's Deli. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard this story because it's not a real thing that happened. It's in my imagination. I don't know how many of you guys have ever lived out in your imagination what you would do. This is like classic Eric. So I will put myself in scenarios and then ask myself, so Eric, what are you going to do right now? And it's weird because even in my imagination, I have to be honest with myself. I'm just one of those guys that's like, yeah, God, I'm not sure what I'm going to do right now. I'm con- I know what I'm supposed to do, but I feel really weak. <laughs> I feel very weak need. Because I've seen myself in certain situations cower and pull back. And I don't like that. I, I, I do not esteem cowardice at all. But I know my propensity to be a coward. And there is a part of Eric that I feel is fragile and weak in a time of testing. And that I want God to overwrite that with a new pattern of living, a new way of functioning. So that when I hit those moments of trial... It is an instinct to rise up and be Christ in that situation. It's not an instinct to pull back and self-preserve. Natural man pulls back and self-preserves. Spiritual man expends. I want to be a spiritual man. I want to be a man built by the kingdom of heaven and and heaven's lumber, not by the earthly fragile plastic stuff. I want the real thing. And I know many of you in here resonate deeply with that. So here's my imagination. I'm in Jason's Deli. The reason it was Jason's Deli is Leslie and I were on some getaway and we were in a hotel and right across the street was a Jason's Deli and we would walk up and down this one street and there was a Jason's Deli both ways, right? So I had something going on where I was chewing on it in my mind. So I could even tell you the Jason's Deli that it was in. It was a very specific one in Broomfield, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm walking, uh, I, I go into Jason's Deli and I'm eating my sandwich and suddenly these bad guys come in, like these terrorists come in, and they have like machine guns, and they uh, start screaming at the top of the lungs, everyone, everyone, and they start shooting into the ceiling. You have pieces of ceiling that are falling. It's one of those crazy situations that throws your equilibrium off, and it causes you to panic. So everyone is like diving onto the floor and hiding under tables, right? And I feel the instinct to do the same. However, I really like the mental picture of Eric continuing to eat his sandwich. I I really like that, okay? If this is a movie scene, I want to be the guy that is still eating my sandwich, sort of like, come on, guys, grow up, right? And then they grab someone from the crowd, and it's a, it's a, it's a lady, Let's, and I don't know what she looks like, but she's, it's a lady, and she, she's grabbed by the bad guy, and he puts a gun to her head, and uh, he says, get him on the phone. Uh, she's going to die. And so there's some kind of negotiations going on. They're asking for a lot of money. And if they don't get something that they want, then this lady's going to die. Okay, so here I am. I mean, I was just minding my own business. But the question that I ask myself is, if something surprises my life, something that I wasn't prepared for, I'm, who's ready for this, right? But I want to be ready for this. Now, I may have jumped down on the floor, Okay, instinct is instinct, right? And so I may be under the table and have some pieces of uh, ceiling falling on me, but my desire is that I would come to my senses as quickly as possible and recognize who I am and what I represent. I hope that I'm still eating my sandwich, sitting there acting like everything's normal, and look over and I see what is taking place. 
And so here's my mental picture. This is what I desire. That I would move forward and walk towards the bad guy and put my hand up in the air and say, take me instead. This is like a deep working in my soul to say, God, build me for this moment. Take me instead. Now, to do that, you have to be crazy. Or you have to be a Christian. You see, a Christian is an expendable. A Christian is built to give. A Christian is given life so that it can give it. I know exactly what's happening with my future. I know that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I do not fear death. The reason Eric Ludi hesitates, there's so many layers to that. There is the fear of pain, the fear of difficulty, the fear of awkwardness, but then there's also the fear of leaving my family, leaving them without a, an advocate, leaving them without a father and a husband. And so there's these natural realm hesitations. But I want to be the sort of guy that has a priority list that says, God, if you stick me in that position, Leslie and my kids know exactly how I'm going to respond. And they know that I need to respond as Jesus would respond. Who wants to be the settler? Now, I've gone through over the past few weeks the decision-making process of the Leidenites or the separatists or we know as the pilgrims once they came over here. Their decision-making process is very extreme. They're in an extreme situation and to weigh where they're going to go, even in deciding to go north in the northern part to join the Virginia uh, Charter in Jamestown was a decision that was odd, if you want to say it that way, but they felt led of God to do this because they could have gone to South America where uh, the fruit just sort of falls from the tree and there's gold everywhere, supposedly. That was a legend that Sir Walter Raleigh had passed on. And instead, they are going to deliberately choose a harder way. They're going to choose Virginia, and they're going to actually end up in New England, as many of us know. And however, the statistics of coming over, 50% of those that came over to the Jamestown colony would die within the first year. 85%, it's actually, the, the statistic is 80 to 90%, we'll just say 85%, would die within, I don't know what it was, two years? Uh, so it's like, if you're coming over, uh, you're basically laying down your life. For the pilgrims, they're not coming over to get gold. They're not coming over to you know, have an easier life. They're coming over being led by God, very specifically, I've gone through that. If you wanna understand that, you just need to listen to my previous two sessions. However, they're making a choice that literally means the loss of their life, likely. But they are going to establish a settlement where the rest of those that are being booted out of England, because the Puritans and the Pilgrims, or the, the Separatists, are all being removed from England in 1618. It's called the Edict of 1618. If you're not part of the Church of England, if, you don't, uh, if you're not subservient to this, if you won't bow your knee to this, you're out of the whole country, their homeland, they're literally removed from. Could you imagine if we were just booted out of America with no place to go? That's a weird situation. This little ragtag group is going to set a pattern. They are going to go before, lay down their life, and create a place. A place where others can come and find refuge. It's, an, it's actually going to form our nation. Technically, our nation is going to be built out of James I's decision to kick the spiritual strength out of England, and it looks for a home. Where does it come? It comes to America. It's like, thank you, James I. That really worked out to our benefit. And yet, who's going to go before and lay down their life to create the environment where these people can come and survive? 
It's going to be this group. So if you just saw in front of you, it's like, okay, guys, uh, we need a few people that are willing to uh, go through this massively difficult adventure, which I've been going through the last couple of weeks, and 85% of you will not make it out alive. What's interesting is if you take the first 12 apostles, uh, and you're going to actually get an almost identical statistic. You could say 100%, but technically it's going to be like 91%. 11 out of 12 are going to die. John, the apostle, is going to be thrown into a vat of boiling oil and pulled out unscathed and exiled to Patmos. You know, so it's arguable of, you know, to even not include that and make it 100%. But this is like, who's following me? Who's in? Who wants to lay the foundation for the church of Jesus Christ? Any takers? We all desire to be one that Jesus would choose. Or do we? You see, this is the most illustrious position in history is to be one who would be asked to be a foundation stone for those to come and build upon. Who wouldn't want this? Every one of us esteems it, but then when it gets down to brass tacks and God looks for a raise of hands of who's ready to go, not many people raise their hand. I want to be one, and I know you guys understand what I mean because I know you do too. We want to be ones that actually shoot our hand up without hesitation. 85% of those that will go, that go, will likely die before the next group of pilgrims arrive. Whew. Stephen was stoned, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain with the sword, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned in club, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, Mark was dragged to pieces, Jude was crucified, Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified, Thomas was thrust through with a spear, Luke was hung, Simon Peter was crucified, and John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and exiled to Patmos. So what I did, and I, I've done this before uh, in, in Ellerslie semesters, I don't know if I've ever done it on a Sunday, is I talk about a clipboard, you know, where an angel comes in and sets up a clipboard. Goes, Guys, uh, I decided to stop here at Ellerslie first because I know a lot of you have been praying that you would be used by God mightily in your generation. So I'm, I'm needing a, a few uh, men and women who are willing to uh, sign up on the, the clipboard. I need uh, 12 of you who would be willing to... Uh, to be a foundation, to be a sacrificial generation so that we can get this thing known as the church up and going again, strong. And so we have a few job descriptions we're looking for. And so you'll notice that on the, the clipboard, I have a, a space where you can put in your name. And, uh, and so I just, I'm gonna leave the clipboard behind and I'll come back and collect it in about 20 minutes. And if you guys are unwilling to sign up your names, I'll find them somewhere else. Who in the right mind would ever allow that angel to leave without your name on the clipboard? I mean, if you think about what matters in all of eternity, and you had the privilege of being one of David's mighties, if you will. You have the privilege of being one of the few who was asked by God, who was put in a position because God trusted you. God said, I, I would like to give you this job. And you say, no, go and look elsewhere. God will look elsewhere. I always call that the Deborah solution. It's like, hey guys, where are the men? Well, the men don't uh, do it. Deborah will be raised up. You don't want, if you're supposed to be Barak, who's supposed to rise up and be the judge, do it. This is our privilege. But we all feel the tension because when rubber meets the road and Christianity really becomes real, and these are real stories unfolding in our very lives, you notice that we tend to pull back. We tend to come up with justifications. 
So who will be stoned? Who will be crucified? Who will be slain with the sword? Who will be stoned and clubbed? Who will be stoned and beheaded? Who will be dragged to pieces? Who will be crucified? Who will be cruelly beaten and then crucified? Who will be thrust through with a spear? Who will be hung? Who will be crucified? And who will be thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil? Now some of you are like, well, I thought I was supposed to be removed unscathed. Well, there's no guarantee. That's not on the clipboard. We don't see that. All we know is we have a job description. It's going to look different in our generation, I know. However, if this really was a clipboard, right now and this morning, how are you responding to it? That's what I'm trying to stir. I want us to ready ourselves in our spiritual man for a yes. And if you find that there is an impediment between you and that yes, I want you to allow God to deal with that impediment. Whatever removes that and dissolves it and gets it out of the way so that you are in a position to be used by the Holy Spirit for such a time as this, I say, let's do that. The invite. So if you guys have ever heard of the Cambridge Seven, Hudson Taylor comes back uh, to England, gives a rip-roaring invitation to the young people of his generation in England to come and join him in the, his mission over in China. C.T. Studd and a whole bunch of other guys, well, it's six other men, are going to like rise up as one man and they're going to be like, we're in. It's an incredible troop of men and they're going to go over to China and I still remember the story uh, where Hudson Taylor has a, a situation, it's a certain province in China that he needs, I don't know who it was, two guys to go to and it's very likely going to lead to their death. So it's, you could just imagine even for Hudson Taylor to put it before the Cambridge Seven. It's like, guys, I need two of you who would be willing to go. Now what's always amazed me about this story is that all seven of them enthusiastically, immediately shoot up their hand and say, let me be the one. Don't, don't look at him. I, I want to be the one. And I find myself, even when I read the story, doing this, where someone raises their hand, and once I see two guys raise their hand, then I raise my hand and I say, oh yeah, and I would of course be willing to go too, but you, you're gonna have to pick the first two that, uh, that raise their hand. So you get the credit for raising your hand, but it's sort of a delayed raising that is only based upon the fact that you're pretty confident that the two are already chosen. So now you want the credit of looking like you're raising your hand when you're actually not. What happens if no one raises their hand? What are you doing? I mean, are, are, and so what I, what I like about the story isn't the fact that someone raised their hand, it's that they enthusiastically raised their hand. They desired the job. That's what I think is missing. We're missing the desire for this. We're trying to work on willingness right now. And desire is what we need. We need to recognize the privilege instead of just get to the point like, God, I'm willing, I'm willing, and it's a duty. I want the job. This is what I was built for. This is what I'm here on earth for. I know that I am called to Esther's role. This is what I've been waiting for. I've been praying for this my whole life, that I could stand up before King Asuharis. No guarantees that I'm gonna live. That's what I've been looking for. Oh, praise God. Could you, let me have this job. Let me have it, please. The excitement of the Aachen adventurers. You guys remember Jim Elliott and his band of uh, merry men? as they discover the Akas, by the way, the Akas are, a, are like one of the most vicious tribes, if not the most vicious, legendary. And so no one in their right mind would ever want to pursue them, let alone find them, let alone 
go and try and reach them. You have to be somewhat cuckoo to even think these thoughts. These guys, when you study the story of these men, it, you either are thinking there's something loony about them or you're deeply inspired. They are desirous to reach these people. They have never heard of Jesus. It's almost like the darker they are in their souls, the more bright, uh, the missionary desi- brightly the missionary desires to find them. Oh, that they would know Jesus. And these men are going to be so excited. You read their journals, you read their communications, you, you hear the, the, the story unfold, and you see even up until the very last moments that these guys are delighting in the privilege of reaching this people even if it costs them their life. Okay, guys, we're missing something. That isn't the normal thinking patterns in the American church today. But I believe it must be. And I'm ready to push that and keep pressing on that to make sure it's in me and then make everyone uncomfortable until it's in us. If we want to be built for such an hour as this, this is what we need. The shout of Ignatius at the news. So Ignatius uh, was a disciple of, of John the Apostle. And when he was told that he was going to be fed to the lions, he rejoiced. I don't know how, if, if I just said, hey guys, I have some news. All of us, uh, they've locked the doors and they have some wild beasts down the road that are, they've kept hungry for the last week. And uh, I guess they're going to feed us to them tomorrow. Uh, let's pray. You know, <laughs> what is your inner response to that? Ignatius is going to rejoice. My salvation has finally come, he says. He calls the lions his friends, for they're the ones that are going to bring him into the presence of his beloved Jesus. So they're friends. This is a different mentality that we're used to. And as a result, there have been many martyrs throughout the years, or I should say almost martyrs throughout the years, that they find out they're going to die and then they're rescued somehow, that are deeply disappointed in the fact that they were rescued. (laughs) What? What is that? That's something that I want us to know intimately. I want us to risk getting familiar with it. Uh, the sprint of Germanicus in the arena. So could you imagine? There's a, Polycarp is a, is a movie that was, was made. And, you know, it didn't have a huge budget, but it, it, it conveyed something to me that, that deeply impacted me. So even though it may be a painting in the distance of the grand arena, it's sort of hard on a limited budget to create an, an old... Uh, arena packed with thousands upon thousands of screaming people, right? You know, so I get that. Or to have wild beasts chewing on people. That's not the easiest thing. So everything is somewhat imagined, right? But Germanicus enters the arena and he's ready. And when you hear the roar of the beast and you see him smirk and then you see him run towards the beasts and then it fades, it's like, all right. All right, you're speaking my language. Uh, That's what I want. I don't want to go in there and go, okay, God, this is your moment. You're going to have to undergird me because I'm about to be killed by wild beasts. Instead, it's like, finally, my time has come. Let's do this right. Come on, let's let's get going on this. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. That's what David is going to do. He is going to sprint towards Goliath. Who in the right mind would sprint towards this creature, right? Who is likely at least double, maybe triple, maybe quadruple his size just in girth. 
who is a champion, who is a warrior from his birth. And David wasn't even invited to the battle. He's a little boy with a sling, and he sprints towards him. That's the attitude that must be cultivated inside of us as the church. So the arrival at Cape Cod, November 11th, 1620. By the way, if you know your uh, dates and times uh, and you understand geography in America, you would not want to arrive at Cape Cod in November. Okay, this was not the plan. There was all sorts of delays, all sorts of difficulties. They'd already had to eat most of their food because they had to go out, come back, because of leaks, come out, come back. The speedwell was considered unseaworthy. Now they're all packed into the Mayflower. They're going to come across. Everything is delayed. Now they're going to arrive in November. Huh. Okay, so it's getting cold out there. They, because of the storms, they are unable to get down to the Jamestown colony where there's already pre-built buildings. So they're going to land in a place of a savage wilderness with no hospitality set up to take them in. They have been in the most miserable seven weeks of travel any human could ever go through in the bottom of this boat in the midst of a tempest. The whole time, they're sick, they're already weak, many of them have already died on the Mayflower, and now they arrive in no man's land. This is a difficult situation, but I tell you what, this is like... This is a good moment to test uh, those that are in this crew. They've already been tested, right? But here, here you go. Now, who wants to get off the boat and go to the land and see what you can find? <laughs> oh, I want that job because the legends, you have to recognize what these guys know. They know that not only does disease usually kill you when you get over, but the cold, and it's an unfamiliar cold to them. This is a lot colder than what they're used to. And Indians. I mean, the stories are, are legendary, and they just want to kill you. And, I mean, they're built to kill. As far as everyone's mindset, this is a savage wilderness, which it is. I'm not going to argue that. So uh, the exploration party of 10, December 6, 1620, they had to build a little boat, and they're going to go. And I don't know which 10 want to sign up for this, but these are like icy waters. These guys are glazed over with ice uh, even when they're arriving at their campsite that night. And the, I mean, so this is like, who wants this job? What I'm, what I'm exercising inside of myself is, because I'm not one of those guys that really wants to be on a boat, right, uh, in, the, in the icy wind and, you know, camp out. On the, everything about this is opposite of the way I was raised, okay? I, camping is not something I, I really delight in. You know, hunting, not something I really, uh, I'm like the classic gentleman from Jamestown. <laughs> as I study this, like, oh no, uh, I was raised as a gentleman from Jamestown. And that's not good if you study Jamestown, okay? This isn't, this isn't a good sign. And so there's so many tensions in my soul as I go through this. Would I be willing to say, uh, I'll go, I'll go. And to actually get in that little boat and to go into the unknown, and they're, they're exploring. They're looking for some place to settle. And, I mean, this is, they're risking their lives to do this. Peter Marshall, the historian, says, During the, the, the night, their sleep was interrupted by many blood-curdling cries and howls. This is their first night on land. And there's this Indian tribe that recognizes that they're there. And so they are like shrieking in the night. Even the descriptions from the pilgrims is like, they'd never heard any sound like it. It's like the sound of death. And it's just shrieks uh, of terror. And then, so that's their night. Then they wake up in the morning 
and it's called the First Encounter. December 8, 1620, they are literally going to be assaulted by Indians, this band of 10. It's a supernatural story, even how they survive uh, this. But this, this is what's awaiting them. So you can just imagine what it would be like to go back to the Mayflower, because they're going to find the, the territory of Plymouth, uh, which they're going to call Plymouth. And uh, could you imagine coming back and saying, yeah, it's everything we've heard and worse. <laughs> Welcome to the new world. The discovery of Plymouth, December 9th, uh, 1620. There's this plot of land that's already been cleared out. There's like 20, 40 acres, I don't remember how much it was, of land for planting that has already been cleared where all the, the timber has been cleared and there's dead bones everywhere. But it's like they have springs of water, they have rivers. It's like this is the ideal spot, but like what happened here? They're gonna find out a long time later that there was a plague that actually killed this entire tribe. There's no one remaining, so no one claims this land. It's theirs. It's, it's truly a remarkable story, but could you imagine that would be somewhat uh, unique to be experienced, like this is the perfect site What's the catch? What's, uh, what's going to pop out of the woods here? This is, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable story. But that gives you some idea of where we're at. We're at December 9th. Was that what it was? December 9th, 1620. They're going to arrive back. Uh, William Bradford is on this boat, right? He gets back. His wife has fallen overboard while in his absence and died. They never recovered her body. Could you imagine what these, these men, the trauma that these men went through was so extreme and so through December 1620 through March 1621, you have yourself a period of time that I'm just going to set before us. It's called the general sickness, not a very good name. If, if I had been back then, I'm sure I could have helped them with a better name, the general, the general sickness. It's like, come on, guys. That's not very epic. But I want to set before you this. It's like whoever is willing to walk into this and come out the other side is going to change the course of a country, which will become the greatest factory for building missionaries this world has ever seen. Would you be willing to go through this narrow stretch? I mean, this is one challenging stretch. So out of 102 pilgrims in December, six more of them die. Okay, now I, I, I trying to get the exact numbers on this. It's like three, four that died on the Mayflower. Uh, so in December, six are going to die. January, eight more are going to die. You only have 102. So it's almost like you take a small group like what we have here and then start trimming off six and then eight more. I mean, you could just imagine how unsettling that would be. Right now in America, it's like we know that six people will die today. And it's not very startling to our soul. It doesn't feel very close to home. But if you were to bake it down into one little parcel of land and just 102 people and you're losing those types of percentages, it's a huge deal. Peter Marshall says, but as they themselves had said, they were not like other people. Okay, now, I'm just going to pause there for a second. They themselves would even say it. They are not like other people. It's the same thing we should say. We are not like the rest of the world out there. And so how we respond to trials is very different. The one thing that is going to set the pilgrims apart is that they have a calm in the midst of storms. They do rejoice. They smile. They know that God is in control. And even though people are dying around them, they are responding very different than like they respond on the ship. The ship has all these uh, unsaved men that are very unsavory, and they will kill each other to get, I mean, they'll, I mean it's, it's totally different. One on the boat, one on the land, and these guys huddle around each other and love one another. 
and they serve one another and sacrifice for one another. These guys are trying to figure out who gets this guy's possessions when he dies. And I mean, they're, they're ruthless and the, the separation between the two is amazing. But as they themselves had said, they were not like other people. The more that adversity mounted against them, the harder they prayed. Never giving in to despair, murmuring, or, or any of the petty jealousies that split and divide. In contrast to the settlers of Jamestown, as their ranks thinned, they drew closer together, trusting God all the more. And still the death toll mounted. In February, often two died in a day, even three on some days. The 21st of February claimed four lives. Those are some difficult uh, times. So readiness to carry the unbearable load. So what I'm describing for all of us is something beyond what we could humanly do. I don't know if you resonate with that statement, but I'm gonna call it the unbearable load. And yet, we need to be readied to do something that would be impossible for us, but is not impossible for God. You see, we recognize that we are being assigned a task that we cannot look at it on paper and go, but that's too much for me. It's not too much for God. So therefore, we say, yes, Lord, to an impossible burden, an impossible path, an impossible hill of difficulty, and we say, yes, Lord, because he makes up the difference. We may only be able to handle this much, and the challenge is going to be way, way up here. Well, how did you expect to live Christianity in the first place? Didn't you know this is what Christianity is? You know that what you've been called to in Scripture is actually way beyond what you are able to perform? So how does it work? It works by God's grace. He works for you. He creates an impossible task and then he carries it out through you and that's why he gets the credit for it because you give God the glory in and through it because it wasn't what you could have done. If we were to only set our sights on what we are capable of doing, the church is going to dive into the dirt. But if we set our sights on what God is capable of doing and we say, God, use me to accomplish it, it is way beyond us. Now most of us when we think that, it's like I wanna reach millions if not billions of people for the gospel. It's a noble venture, but most of us are unwilling to go and face the impossible challenges as far as the persecution, as far as the imprisonment, as far as even the martyrdom that may come with doing this. And that's where we shrink back. We don't oftentimes shrink on the bigness of calling, even though sometimes we do. We shrink back on the bigness of sacrifice. But God, you can't ask so much of me. Can you still accomplish the same without so much difficulty, without so much sacrifice, without so much suffering? Well, look at the cross, guys. You answer that question. God, could you accomplish the same without that difficulty, without that sacrifice, without that suffering? No. For whatever reason in God's economy, he knows what is needed. To save us from our sin, look at the cross. To redeem us, to crush the head of the serpent. What was needed in extreme sacrifice? To establish his gospel in this world. To stand up against the oncoming evil and darkness. For whatever reason, throughout Christian history, I'm not just saying now, throughout Christian history you will see men and women who will go forth into a country knowing full well that they may die. And the first wave oftentimes does so that a second wave can come in and win them for Christ. And we're all like, well, God, could you send in your first wave? And I'm happy to be the second wave. God doesn't give us the choice. For whatever reason, he has chosen our generation to be a first wave generation. 
to be a generation of sacrifice. We raise our hand in the air and say, thank you, Lord, that is the greatest privilege. I am so glad that you didn't make me a second generation, that you didn't make me the one that could just follow in. I am so happy that you are setting us up to be the one that lays down our life. Praise God! I don't know if all of you are as excited as I'm declaring right now. I'm struggling too, I got it, I'm right there with you. At the same time, this is what I esteem. This is what I appraise as valuable. This is what I know is right, is that we would rise up with that same Jim Elliott fervor, that same C.T. Stud yearning to say, oh, no, 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 don't pick him, pick me. Where's that clipboard? Hey, Preston, give it back. No, you can't fill in all those, but there's still one, I get the boiling oil. In other words, we are desirous to be the ones that God uses. Paul the Apostle, Romans 9, 1 through 3. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Why would Paul need to say that to start out this little uh, segment? I tell the truth in Christ. This is inspired scripture. It's all true. But he's going to go out of his way to say, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Isn't that a fascinating statement to lead into this? Why? Because many of us would say, I think he's just saying something a little more hyperbolized than it probably is. He's just sort of waxing eloquent, romantic. When in actuality, he's saying, look guys, this is real inside of me. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. It's an incredible statement. I'm willing to be the sacrifice generation. I'm willing to lay down my life that others could know him. I'm willing. It's a very real thing within Paul. His conscience even testifying of it. So I have to ask myself, is my conscience testifying to me that that's true? I'm not sure. I esteem it, but I want it. I want to be ready to lay down my life, not just for my wife and my kids. That's almost an easier realm for us to comprehend as a man. But how about for the church? How about this? How about for those that are lost and dying? How about for the liberal community? How about for those that are caught up in homosexuality? Would we be willing to lay down our life that they would see, that they would awaken? To what degree, to what measure are we willing to allow God's heart and his passion to change us, to change our thinking and to change our living? 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Now, I chose the King James translation for this on purpose because the terminology is perfect. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Now, when you use the word wealth, it triggers something in us, especially in in America, because this isn't how we've been trained. We've been trained to build up our own wealth, not to seek someone else's. So, To actually live in such a way to say, God, even if you must impoverish me, could you supply to the nations through me? Esther is going to have to come up to a decision. She's a queen. She has comforts. But she is going to give up being a queen. She's going to give up her life as she now knows it, all her comforts, all her future, all her hopes of a family, and being a mother, being a grandmother, having an influence. She is willing to give it all up to save her people because she was chosen by God for such a time as this, to be his vessel to stand in the gap. 
What if we were chosen for that? Would we resist, would we resent, or would we cherish such a commission? The power of embraced unfairness. Many of us look at life through the lens of fairness, equity, and justice. It's not that that's bad. However, when it comes to our own life, we have to give up the demand for fairness and for equity and for justice. Otherwise, we'll really be disturbed people in this world. Right now, most of us are upset with what's going on in America because of the injustice, right? It really disturbs us, and it should. Injustice, God doesn't like injustice. However, when it comes to us, to what's going to happen to us, it's a stumbling block if we don't embrace the fact that it's a built-in feature. Look at the cross again, if you just need a template. That is the most unjust, (laughs) unfair, inequitable thing that has ever happened on earth, and you're going to see him receive it joyfully. There is something so profound about the Christ model, but we have Christ in us. What does that mean? That means that when we lead our homes as men, we don't look for fairness and justice and equity in our relationship with our wives. You ever notice? That's one of the number one stumbling points that men even have. It's like, well, how come my wife could say that to me, but I couldn't say that to her? It's, it's a funny thought process that we have. Technically, as the man, we are supposed to carry the greater weight. It's okay. It's supposed to be inequitable. It's not supposed to be just some equal thing like, hey, I already did this. Now you have to do this. We are ready to carry a greater measure. And when it comes to everything else we do in our life, you're going to find the same principle. What is going to happen to us is not necessarily guaranteed to be fair, equitable, and just. Jesus will walk us straight into territory so that he can accomplish something through us where we will have our goods stripped from us, our bank accounts frozen. Things could happen to us that are just not right. However, how we respond to those and how we give up our life in and through that and how we continue to rejoice and how we continue to love actually is God taking us in and through something that he does not delight in injustice, he does not delight in these things, but in and through it, God will showcase to the world who he is. Are you willing to embrace unfairness? That's hard. It doesn't mean you embrace unfairness for someone else. In other words, you're like, hey, you need to allow this unfairness. You fight for other people to be treated well. However, you yourself are willing to hang on a cross. Falsely accused, unjustly treated, that you may show Jesus. Peter Marshall says, at one point in the entire company, there were only five men well enough to care for the sick. Okay, so now we're in this new colony, which is not built, right? They have these ramshackle buildings that have begun, but they are not developed to much of a point yet. I mean, they're in the middle of winter. Could you imagine trying to build in the middle of a New England winter? And so they have this long house, and they have a few little small uh, houses, but almost everyone is, the sick are all in this one house, and almost every single person that remains is sick. Could you imagine being one of the four or five? Uh, God, I'm willing to be one of the four or five. Actually, it almost sounds better to be one of the sick in this situation, but you don't know if you're sick, you don't know if you're gonna survive. So this is a tough one, right? If you're gonna pick, it's like, which one do you wanna be? Could you imagine four or five that have to do all the work 
in the middle of the winter, they have to supply all the food, they have to clean up everyone, they have to take care and nurse everyone. Four or five need to take care of everyone. If you've ever been, we were joking this morning about, you know, because Leslie's struggled with some uh, headaches lately, that somehow when Leslie isn't functioning as she ought, daddy doesn't quite fill the whole gap. <laughs> it doesn't always quite work as well. The Ludi family begins to become unstable almost instantaneously. And so could you, and that's just a family of, like we have six kids, right? That's not very many. Could you imagine when they have, I don't know what would have been here during this time, but you know, the numbers are decreasing, but it's a big chunk of people, right? And could you imagine needing to feed all of them, nurse all of them? Uh, I mean, this is something else. So one of them, was Captain Standish, who tended Bradford, among others, raising his head up and cradling it in his arm to spoon him a bit of soup. Standish, Brewster, it's William Brewster, and three or four others chopped wood, cleaned, clothed, cooked, and tended. It's unfair, guys. It's unfair that four or five would be responsible for caring for everyone else. And yet this is when men are proven. This is the moment that we rise up. This is what we embrace. It's like, Lord, give me grace to do this. You don't for, a one, for one moment measure how much this sick person is contributing and the fact that you have to chop their wood, you have to feed them, you have to lift their head and cup it in your arm and, and, and give them soup. Come on, they're not doing that for me. The cross of Jesus. Could you imagine if he's like, hey, they're not doing this for me. And yet he's still cupping our head and spooning the soup into our mouth. He's laying down his life. It is unfair, it is unjust. It's not right that just four or five men would have to take care of everyone else. But what a privilege. We look at this and you know, it's sort of like, God, I want, I want to be one of the four or five. I mean, just to make this company of 102 has been hard, right? And then to get down and to be in this type of a situation, you know what, these guys had to protect the entire uh, plantation from the, uh, the natives around as well. So they would show themselves out and make it seem like they had more of them than they had. They had two rotations just to sort of create this sense of people. There was like four or five of them. And, they, and a tribe of Indians could wipe them out so easily. Talk about needing the protection of God. So out of 102 pilgrims in December, six die. January, eight die. February, 17 die. And then in March, 13 more die, which ironically was encouraging to them. Why? Because the number finally began to drop instead of go up. It's like, oh, we've turned uh, the tide on this. I mean, that's just an extraordinary thing. Now, if you do the math on that, you're going to come up with 44, which that's why you see me saying, I think three died on the Mayflower. I, I, this isn't the easiest thing because the histories actually differ in numbers, but it's somewhere right around here. Some say 45 total, some say 49. So I'm sort of hanging out in the middle uh, with 47 have died by the end of March, which is interesting because remember how I said in the first year in Jamestown, 50% would die. And this, this is what the pilgrims knew. They knew that likely at least 50% in the first year would die, 85% in the first two years would die. Imagine going into something like that. Listen to this statement. 47 died so that an amazing country could be birthed. This is such an extraordinarily important dimension of our history. Now, I've talked about the Franciscans coming up in the southwest. Uh, I've talked about the Jesuits coming in the north and coming down 
uh, through Canada and then into Illinois and Michigan and down through the Mississippi. I've talked about the martyr's blood that has been shed. Then I've talked about Great Britain when they get the idea that they would like to take a piece of this pie. They start with Roanoke disaster. They go to Jamestown. It's a terrible, dismal failure. And, but God has a purpose. God has a purpose for this land. All the conquistadors didn't come up here. It was the missionaries that were attracted to this territory because they didn't think there was gold here. And yet this is hostile territory. This is very dangerous territory. And the pilgrims feel led by God, instead of going to South America, where there's ease, where there's gold, to actually go to North America. It wasn't called that at the time. But to go to join the... Virginia Charter, which was a mess, but they felt like they were supposed to go there. It's the first time there has ever been a group of Christians coming over. They always would have like a group of men that, you know, were wanting to build a colony and bring their family over. Not Christians, but just sort of businessmen, and, you know, they're trying to figure out a creative way of building a plantation of their own and, you know, and taking land, you know, hey, if I settle this. And then suddenly you're going to see a group come across, not single missionaries, but a group come across in one boat. And all hell is going to break loose on this little group. And this little group is going to stand in the midst of that with joy, with praise, and with worship. It's an incredible story to do a zoom in on this. And by the way, these guys uh, were not colorless. You know how you have the black hats and all this? I guess these were Elizabethan Englishmen, and they liked color. That was the Puritans that didn't like the color. They th- said frivolous dress leads to frivolous living. And so as a result, they, I, I guess one had a, like a, uh, a green cape, and the other one, you know, some kind of hat. And I was like, huh, I like that. Like a, a little color coming to the pilgrims. They were sort of dull and drab, but now in my memory, you know, they're like starting to, to have a little dazzle to them. 47 died that an amazing country could be birthed. It's a really hard thing to say, hey guys, I need 47 of you that would be willing to go out and lay down your life so that others could find life. Like I said, this is gonna be the greatest factory of missionaries that has ever existed is going to come out of this experiment. They are going to make a compact, it's called the, the Mayflower Compact, on the boat before they exit that is going to be the foundation of all government in our constitution. Representative government is going to be founded in that boat by these people. Something is going to be established, but it's going to be established through difficulty, through sacrifice, through suffering. The pattern of the first sufferer. Uh, I could give you a lot of illustrations through Scripture, but there is one illustration that trumps them all. Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 2, 20 through 24, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So he's creating this distinction between doing bad and suffering for it, but what if you do good and you receive suffering for it? What if you make right choices and it, and you, it brings difficulty on your head? Uh, <clears throat> Christianity? And that's exactly what he's going to say here. He says, this is commendable before God. And then he's going to respond to that statement and say, for to this, to what? For to this, to doing good and suffering for it, for to this you were called. You were called to stand up and do that which is right and to suffer for it. Isn't that an incredible thought? You were called to this. This is in the the basic package of coming to Christ and following and heeding him. You were called to do that which is right in a world that is wrong. 
And when you do that which is right in a world that is wrong, you receive wrong against you. But you were called to this. For to this you were called, why? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, if you just took that scripture and we just lifted it out and said, okay, there you go, guys, go for it. Go and try and follow Christ in his steps. He gave an example, now try it. You would fail. You need the rest of the gospel to understand how this works. It's not you that could possibly walk out the life of Christ. But when you believe in Jesus, you are clothed in Jesus. When you are clothed in Jesus, you are indwelled by Jesus. So that Jesus Christ himself is the one who animates and activates by his power this incredible life that you can follow his example and follow in his steps. So listen, now this flows out of that. It is a, it's like a commentary on what it means to follow Christ's example. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus is going to suffer in his body so that others could live. That same Christ has saved us. That same Christ lives in us. And that same Christ does the same thing that Christ does in us. He wants us to live right in this world that is wrong. He knows full well what that means. I don't know that we do. I think we're starting to get the hunch as we see the trajectory of this nation. Many are very fearful about the upcoming election in November. However, no matter what our country chooses as a global entity, God wants to fit you for such a time as this. It could be the greatest gift. I don't, I don't want a negative uh, turn in our country any more negative than we've already turned. I don't. I would delight in seeing a turn towards righteousness. In the governmental office positions of who's elected, I would desire to see righteous men and women in those roles. However, the church does not become non-functional based on the governmental setup of this nation. It may be exactly what will unlock the church to actually function as it ought to function if we have unrighteous rulers that ask us to shut up, that declare it a crime against humanity to be a believer in Christ, at least a vocal one, and then suddenly what does the church do? We step forward and we say, we take our commission from the King of Kings. That does not mean we show disrespect. That does not mean we don't submit to the degree that it doesn't violate our conscience. But we have a job to do. And we are going to do it whether a government around us pats us on the back and gives us a free pass to do it, gives us tax-deductible receipts and allows us to write things off. It makes no difference to the church of Jesus Christ. It makes it easier, but it makes no difference. We are called to represent Jesus right now to do that which is right in a wrong world. God has his clipboard out, and he's wanting to know as he surveys this room, do you want to go with me?
Do you want to be part of me raising up a standard against this evil that is coming in? Are you willing to join me in that? And I want every one of us to shoot that hand up in the air, C.T. Studd style, Jim Elliott style, Esther style, David style, Jesus style. Lord, yep, my knees are knocking. I got a little humanity that's expressing itself inside of me. But I also have the Spirit of God that is saying yes through me. So I'm going to let that voice speak, and I'm going to say yes. Yes is my answer, Lord. Take me, use me, spend me for your glory, honor, and praise. Father, we need an increase of you. It's the same thing the church in Acts chapter 4 needed. We recognize the frailty of our humanity and we see, when we see Peter and John beaten, we recognize that we could be next. And Lord, we oftentimes feel that lack in those moments. But what do we do? We turn to you and we ask that you would empower us, that you would shake the room in which we are in and that you would fill us with the spirit of boldness. Lord, we ask for that spirit of boldness right now. We ask that you would give us everything that a Christian needs in order to fully function as the body of Christ. Lord, we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.